Welcome to the Positively Alive podcast. I am so glad you made it, and I can't wait to introduce you to our distinguished panel of speakers. This is a space where you will be able to learn more about HIV and AIDS, about the latest medical developments and the tremendous progress that has been made over the last couple of years. We will also elaborate on what it means to live with HIV today and how it is possible to live not only a healthy, but also a happy life. I have carefully selected our interviewees. Over the course of the next weeks and months, you will hear the voices, insights and opinions of policymakers, activists, influencers and some of the world's top medical professionals on the topic of HIV and stigma. There will also be the stories of HIV-positive people and their personal experiences on what living with HIV actually means to them. The main purpose of this podcast is to inform, educate and empower, to get the topic out of the taboo zone, to normalize HIV and to stimulate an open conversation. It is also intended to counter ignorance, prejudice, stigma and discrimination that is all too often affecting the most vulnerable people in our societies. This podcast is also a part of a wider online communication campaign about HIV and stigma. If you want to know more, please join our Facebook group at Positively Alive or visit our website at www.positivelyalive.org. Thank you so much for being here and for tuning in. I really hope you will find our content useful and purposeful. Looking forward to see you inside. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Positively Alive podcast episode. Thank you so much for joining us again. Our guest today is Mr. Paul Kawada. He's the director of the National Minority AIDS Council, better known as NMAC, and has been since 1989. NMAC is the premier organization dedicated to building leadership in communities of color to address the challenges of HIV and AIDS. Under his guidance, NMAC has become a powerful voice in Washington, D.C., championing racial justice for over 3,000 HIV and AIDS organizations nationwide and providing a comprehensive array of technical assistance programs and services, conferences, trainings, and printed and online resource materials. Before joining NMAC, Paul Kawada served as the founding executive director of the National AIDS Network between 1985 and 1989. He was the first national organization dedicated to developing the capability and effectiveness of community-based leaders in the fight against AIDS. During his tenure, he recruited the Ad Council to work on the inaugural National HIV and AIDS Public Service Campaign. He also organized and supported the National AIDS Fund, the single largest private philanthropic partnership in the history of the epidemic. Paul Kamala, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's thank a pleasure so to have much. you today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I, I look forward to talking. All right. I'd like to start with the US AIDS conference where we are today. The focus of the, of the conference is to end the HIV epidemic in America by reducing HIV-positive diagnosis below 3,000 by the year 2030. Now, that's a very ambitious objective. Could you please elaborate a little bit on this objective and yeah. provide some context? So I think that what we need to understand is that this is a very unique moment in history and that we are about to attempt something that has never happened before, which is that we're looking at ending an epidemic without a vaccine or a cure. And, and that's just remarkable and unique. And so we are writing history. But I guess that's nothing new to HIV, that we've been writing history since the beginning of the epidemic. The challenges here are twofold. The solution to ending the epidemic in America is treatment. And it's treatment for people who are living with HIV. And it's treatment for people who are HIV negative. We're asking all people living with HIV 
to become undetectable. And that's why I love Bruce's campaign about U equals U, because I think it's revolutionary. I think it has the opportunity to completely transform the role that people living with HIV play in this epidemic. They move from vectors who were stigmatized to people who are essential and core to the solution. For me, that's the ultimate justice. For me, that is the ultimate justice in life to all the people who stigmatized, who said negative things about people living with HIV. They now have to come to them and say, we need you to end this epidemic. It's beautiful. It's incredible. Talking about Bruce Richmond, I interviewed Bruce last week. What he's doing is indeed revolutionary. It's also based on conclusive evidence uh, done by Professor Alison Rogers, who I also interviewed about the Partner 2 study. Bruce told me that, it, that there is still, despite this evidence, still some reluctance in the United States to adopt and endorse yeah. you as you, yeah. really undetectable means untransmittable. Where do you think that resistance comes from and how challenging will it be really for everybody to adopt and endorse this, this, this crucial message? You know, I, I think that the stigma about HIV isn't gone and that you equals you addresses that stigma, but it doesn't necessarily get rid of it, particularly for healthcare providers and for doctors. And that when someone says completely untransmittable, they always say, but there's that little teeny tiny bit to the medical accuracy. Oh my God. And, and I guess what I want to say to all of them is that we live in the world where there's always a chance. You live in a world where if you walk down the street, you can hit by a car. But what's the reality? And what the reality is, is that U equals U. The, the reality is that if you are undetectable, you cannot transmit HIV. And I believe that the system does a great disservice to all people living with HIV if they don't support this reality. Yeah, absolutely. I think so too. Now, coming back to the US, uh, the US AIDS conference, yesterday in, the, the, in your opening speech, you said that we have a beautiful objective ending the epidemic on the horizon, but that it will require the participation of all stakeholders involved. And you were referring specifically to, uh, to the audience. What did you mean by we are facing yet our toughest battle and what will it, what will it require to end the epidemic really? So the reality of ending the epidemic during the Trump administration is absolutely not lost on me. That this is a contradiction and a test of our leadership like I think we'll never know. You know, we live in a world right now that is a very scary place if you're different. We live in a world where if you are LGBTQ, if you are living with HIV, if you're a person of color, if you're a woman, the world, at least in America right now, hates you. And so how we are able to overcome that hate and that discrimination and figure out real solutions is, I think, the test of our leadership. These questions are so much bigger than just HIV, because what we're talking about is equality. What we're talking about is justice. What we're talking about is creating a world that is fair for everyone. With the National Minority AIDS, AIDS Council, your executive director, you had some fairly high-profile meetings with the Trump leadership, with officials. How has the feedback been, and was it in line with your expectations? There was a meeting between activists and Dr. Redfield, who was the head of the CDC. From my perspective, the meeting went much better than I thought it was going to go. And part of why it went better is because we were able to get some agreements about certain issues that we're going to fight together on. The first issue that we're going to fight together on is ending laws that criminalize HIV transmission. We all agree, both the CDC and the activists, 
that the criminalization of the transmission of HIV is not good public health. And so we're going to be looking at how can we work with CDC to make that statement publicly because that's going to make a difference. And so there were topics like that that we could find some agreement on. Now, obviously, there were a lot of things that we didn't have agreement on. But the thing is that we talked. We sat down at a table and had what I would call a person-to-person conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really important. Because I think sometimes we demonize each other without knowing each other. Now, coming back to the conference, um, obviously, the political climate may be a bit challenging, but you have more attendees than you expected. I saw people in the room standing at the end of the, the, the ballroom. What does that tell you about the people involved in the HIV struggle? Sure. In about 30 days, on October 1st, 2019, 57 jurisdictions are going to start building their plans to end the epidemic in their jurisdiction. And part of why I think there were so many people this year was because there's been a lack of information. And so they came here to know, how do I get involved? What is my role? How can I make a difference in this? And and so as great as I think USCA is, I have to tell you, I think it is absolutely all about a commitment to ending the epidemic, figuring out what is my role in that. Based on communities. Yes, yes. This is, this is where you really uh, emphasize the role of the communities within society. We use this in the United States, and it's a very U.S. phrase. And so I will, I will on, own that and say, nothing about us without us. It is a belief that we cannot create solutions for our communities if our communities aren't at the table. Part of the challenge right now of, of our efforts to end the epidemic is that we want to reach communities that we haven't been able to reach. You know, we want to reach the transgender community in ways that we haven't been able to reach them. We want to reach particularly young gay men of color in ways that we haven't been able to reach them. And so we're going to have to really take some risks here and do things differently. So Dr. Redfield from the CDC talks about disruptive innovation. And disruptive innovation from a government official seems like extraordinary language to talk about the fact that we have to do things differently if we want to see a different result. And, and, and so I support that. And I support his call for comprehensive community engagement. And, and, and I'm going to take him at his word that he's going to fight for us. Now, yesterday, during his plenary session, there were some protests on stage. There was the transgender community that, uh, that spoke out. And they were basically concerned about the fact that they are not having a seat on the table. The biggest problem with, with the transgender community right now that they're facing is that the government classifies transgender with gay men. And so we have no idea how many transgender people are living with HIV. Every time that you're transgendered, you're considered a gay man. Well, as a gay man, we know that's not an equivalent assumption. And so part of the challenge is we have no idea what the overall impact is on the transgender community. And if you're going to create a solution, you've got to have a denominator. You've got to know how many people you're talking about. And so they have a very legitimate concern, like, how can we measure success if you don't know how many of us there are? And the other thing that I think is equally important is how can you build programs, particularly programs for the transgender community, and not hire transgender people? It is, to me going to be one of the biggest challenges of this effort, which is to convince health departments and community-based organizations 
that they have to hire transgender folks to lead this effort. And if that they don't, it's, it's going to be just another patronizing overlay that won't matter. Something that's artificial, not very serious. Yeah. Right. And now, when you talk about minorities and community building, you've spoken about the role of culture. Could you elaborate sure, a little bit sure. on that? One of the things that I've learned about HIV is that it is a window to our world in ways and, that I never, ever thought possible. I have met people in communities that I would never have met in my regular life. And I love that culture. I love to learn about that culture. And what I'm trying to convince the HIV movement about is that if you don't love and appreciate the cultures of the communities that you're trying to reach, you will never reach them. You have to understand the community. And so that means you have to understand gay men. That means you have to understand black women. That means you have to understand the transgender community. That means that you have to understand drug users. And that if you don't understand them, you will never be able to reach them. Yeah. They're different subcultures, basically. Yeah. Talking about challenges, HIV and AIDS used to kill people yeah. back in the days. You yeah. know very well, you were then in the beginning. Now, today it's become a chronic disease. Yeah. But also, one of the side effects has, has been that people say, well, if I get HIV, I take a pill and that's it. But that's a mindset that could you know, lead to certain consequences undesired. So let me talk about what... In America, at least, the reality is for people living with HIV, because I think it's very different from the perception. We recently did a study of people over 50 living with HIV, and the vast majority of them live in isolation and suffer depression, and that there are very real consequences, that if we do not address them, we are going to lose this generation even sooner than we had. You know, we're kind of damaged. When you survive an epidemic, when you lose as many people as we've lost, when you've held the hands of, of people that changed your life, how do you survive that? How do you then become who you are now and be healthy? You know, I, I think we haven't talked a lot about it, but we're very damaged people. I'm a very damaged person. I went to too many funerals. By the time I was 30, I went to over 200 funerals. Nobody should have to go to over 200 funerals by the time they're 30. No one should have to stand and hold someone's hand when they die and tell them it's okay and you can let go. But that's what we did. And now we're waking up and realizing there was a consequence to that. There was an absolute consequence. And we are paying the price. If I would ask you, from all the people you've lost, uh, Paul, if there was anything that you could tell them today, what would it be? My friend, my partner, the person that I love more than life, he died in 92. If he had lived four more years, he would still be here. It is my biggest regret and greatest sorrow that four years, four years and we could have had a life. You've been probably one of the most recognizable faces uh, of activism, HIV activism, in the United States. You must have a feeling also of accomplishment of, of certain things. Is there anything that you could... So, so I have to be honest with you. Until we end the epidemic, I don't have a sense of accomplishment. I, I feel like that is the moment that I get to breathe and exhale. But until that moment, I feel the responsibility of this epidemic. I am one of the founders of the National Association of People Living with HIV, uh, People with AIDS. 
There were 33 of us, and I'm the last one alive. I think they chose me because they wanted someone HIV negative to remember their story and to tell their story. There are moments when it feels too much. There are moments when it feels extraordinarily overwhelming to remember these amazing men and women. But that's also my gift, is that I do know those people. And they changed my life. And they made me stronger and louder and angrier and much more of an activist than I ever would have been if I hadn't met them. And I believe they're all watching from above. And Oh, so do I. I do too. I think that my life is so guided and that there are so many times, you know, it's it's like... I've been doing this work for 30 years. No one has a job for 30 years anymore. Nobody. I mean, I am truly a relic. And the only reason I'm here, the only reason I'm here is because of the people that I love and lost. As they died, I said to every single one of them, I will remember you and I will call out your name. And that's my job. <laughs> I'm tired. You can tell I'm really tired. The, the meeting is getting to me. But thank you. Jeez. Okay. Oh. Okay, Paul. Thank you so much for uh, for speaking so openly about everything. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm sorry. I'm just you know. So I'm a little tired. We're in the middle of a meeting. A little stress. So excuse me. Okay. But I'd like to ask you some. I was in South Africa okay. last week. We are supporting an HIV orphanage for children. Oh God. And with this campaign, we're trying to generate funds. Now, one of the things that struck me, we went into the townships, uh, we, we shot the entire day, and we, we spoke to, uh, to women with, with, with HIV children, to the orphans themselves. And one of the things that the nurses told me, she said that a lot of people who take their medicine, you know, once they feel better, they stop taking it. And that's one of the things that I've seen in the US. You said that we can get people linked to care, but we're not seeing the same levels of retention. Is that a problem in, in the United States? There are 1.2 million Americans living with HIV. 250,000 of them have fallen out of care and are no longer on medication. 150,000 of them are unaware of their HIV status. And about another 100,000 are not undetectable. So there are about 500,000 people living with HIV in America right now who are not linked to care. So it is a huge problem and something that must be the priority for our efforts to end the epidemic. It is, yeah. And there's, there's also another thing that I'd really like to touch upon because it's something that that's, it's really, it touches my heart. Uh, in July 2019, there was news from the border, the, the south of the United States, where families were being separated based on the HIV status. How is this possible in the 21st century and how... There are times when I can't believe what's happening in this country. There are times when it seems almost impossible to make any progress. I am, I'm adopted. And when I saw that young girl with her piece of pizza at the border, this is not the America that I love. This is not the America that I believe in. And I worry for our future. I worry for us as a people and, and I worry for our planet. I'd like to end this with one more question, uh, Paul. Uh, you were once asked by your board uh, what you wanted for your birthday. Yeah, yeah. And you told them that you didn't want anything, but that they supported an organization uh, and have children separated from their parents because as an adopted child, you know their pain. Now, we are supporting also an orphanage with children. I've seen them. I've seen their joy, their innocence, their, their smile. It's something that touches you so deeply that you, you never forget it. So is there anything that you 
say to those children uh, from the background that you come from? Two things that I would say. The first is, so I went to an orphanage that was run by Dr. My Father D'Agostino in Kenya and had an opportunity to spend some extraordinary time with these amazing children. And this was before they had meds. And they didn't even have electricity. We would at night build these bonfires and sing these songs, and these children had more life in them and more love in them than anyone I had ever seen. What I want your kids to know is it does get better. It really does. I mean, when I was adopted... Nobody wanted to adopt a Japanese child. You know, it was after World War II, and we were vified. And this very, very, very modest Japanese family adopted me. And I'm sure they still to this day think, who is this queen that we got? <laughs> and, and, and yet they love me just the way I am. And it was, it was luck. And it was fortune. And it does get better. Fantastic. Paul Kawada, thank you so much. Thank you so much. So yes, a big, big thank you to Paul Kawada for coming on our podcast and for sharing with us his fascinating journey as the voice for those communities that are disproportionately impacted by HIV. Also, thank you to talk about the importance of Relink and to retain more people living with HIV into care and treatment. And also why it is so important to have the communities as an integral part to the solution. Thank you so much, Paul Kawada. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and that you learned something. If you haven't done so already, please join our Positively Alive Facebook group, specifically set up for this global campaign. It is a place where we raise awareness about HIV and educate people to counter prejudice, taboo and stigma. Whether you are HIV positive or not, our growing community is for everyone interested in learning more about the topic and to share positive and uplifting messages. Check also the Positively Alive YouTube channel, where we upload a reduced video version of this podcast interview with the most important messages. I would also love it if you review this podcast and share your thoughts across social media. Let people know that you subscribed to the Positively Alive podcast. The more it gets shared, the more people we will reach, and that is ultimately the intention of this podcast. You can tag me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter, and let me know what you have learned from this. I am so looking forward to share with you our next episode. I also take this opportunity to reiterate and underline the importance of your personal financial contributions to this campaign. Never before in history have we been so close to a vaccine for HIV. Strangely enough, however, we see the national and international donor community pulling back, thinking that everything is in the pocket already. It is not yet in the pocket. We cannot afford a funding crisis right now, not when we are this close to ending the epidemic. A society without HIV where our children can be vaccinated against the virus, how cool would that be? And how much money this would save us as a society? So from a place of humility and love, please be generous with your donations. You can find the donation link in the text area of this podcast, on our Facebook page, on all our other social media channels, and on our website, www.positivelyalive.org. I count on you, and so does the world. Thank you so much.